Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help teens and adults with autism become more independent and successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Last week, we talked with Tracy Cohen about the positive impacts of running for autistic people. If you haven't checked that episode out, I suggest you go back and hear that great conversation with her. This week, we will continue that discussion from a different perspective with occupational therapist David Weiss, who talks about how he has helped autistic people get involved in running and the amazing results he has witnessed due to this. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, happy to be here. Now, where does your story in the autism community start? Well, I think if you go really far back, it goes back to the fact that my mother is a nurse at a pediatrician's office. And so uh, my mom is a great mom, of course, but uh, just her love of kids and, you know, hearing her stories of being a nurse and working with kids with different, you know, things going on in their lives, I think that fostered an interest in working with kids generally. But sometimes you'd hear stories of kids with certain challenges or disabilities too that fostered my interest. And then I actually have, uh, f I believe it's five occupational therapists in my family and one physical therapist in my family, uh, cousins and uncles. And I heard their stories growing up of their professions. And some of them work with kids and some don't. But so it fostered my uh, interest in those pr the, the therapy professions. So going really far back, that, that probably is a start. But more specifically with autism, go when you're uh, going through the process to apply to therapy school, you, they ask you to do certain experiences, volunteer work, kind of you know, work in different settings. And so one of those opportunities is I spent about a year, once or twice a week, going into, I grew up in the state of Michigan, what they call the pre-primary impaired classroom. And so what that is is kind of a preschool age thing. Um, and it's three, four, and five-year-olds with various challenges or disabilities. And it was, first of all, a male teacher in special ed, not very common. So as a guy, that was kind of interesting to me. And it was this uh, Mr. Osborne, his name is Jack. He's probably retired by now, but he was an amazing teacher. Amazing, amazing teacher. And he would always go, hey, Dave, go work with you know this kid. Hey, why don't you go sit with this kid and, and stuff. And so some of those kids had autism. And I knew very little about autism then. And so my, <laughs> the funny one is my first real experience working with a, a child with autism was we were taking a group from that classroom, and I was volunteering that day, and we were taking a group to the bowling alley to go bowling. And so there was a little girl, I can't even remember her name, but it was a little girl, cute little girl, four years old, and she had autism. I didn't really know much about all that that entailed. I just knew she had autism. And so we went bowling, and so my first foray into working with a child with autism was, you know, they had one of those things where you put the ball on top, roll it, and it rolls it down, and then it right. goes down the alley right. and all of that. And so her and I got up, and I'm helping her put the bowling ball up on the thing. And we roll it down the little metal thing, and the ball starts to go down the alley. And out of nowhere, she sprints after the bowling ball all the way down to the pins. And I had to sprint after her. And I'm thinking everyone's looking at me, and I'm embarrassed. Oh, my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, run after the little girl, and we all the way down to the pins, and we walk back. And then I worked with the little thing. So my first foray was going, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, this little girl was so interested in the bowling ball. She sprinted down and you know, didn't have the concept that you just watched the ball go down the aisle. So that was my first introduction <laughs> to autism. Uh, and my story started there. And then moving forward, I became an occupational therapist. And I actually had a position, and still do, actually, as one of my many side jobs, uh, working with students, um, many of whom have experienced trauma, a few with de developmental disabilities, and that, uh, that work gave me some experience working with kids with some pretty significant challenges, and then I ended up uh, coming to the Positive Education Program and Prentice Autism Center and working with kids there, and I've been there ever since for 16 and a half years and loving every second of it, really. Now, I think we get along so well because we have, we don't just share one passion, but we share two passions. The first is obviously supporting people with autism, but the other is running. 
So you currently <laughs> have something like, I don't know, five, six, it's five, seven. It's five, I think it's five. It's only five jobs. Yes, yes, you yes. only have five jobs right yeah. now. But you work full-time as an occupational therapist at the Pep Prentice Autism Center. I know you've been able to combine these two passions at the Prentice uh, Autism Center. Can you share with our listeners how you've gone about doing this? I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of occupational therapy students as they're coming up in their field. And everyone has their own passions, whatever those are, things that they feel strongly about or, or who, how they identify themselves. And I present a lot about why leisure and sports and not even just sports, but all leisure is so important. And one of the first slides I show is when you go on a first date or you go to a party and you meet someone, what do you ask them? You say, what's your name? Hey, what do you do for a living? Hey, what do you do for fun? And what I always say in those presentations is, imagine if you ask somebody that question and they say, nothing. I don't know. And for a lot of people with autism, that is the answer. It's, it's very limited. And so I feel very fortunate that I have some passions. I just came off the football practice field to talk to you right now. So coaching and then running became a passion for me. And so what I always say to those students when I'm talking about the importance of rec and leisure is I always say to them, wherever you go to work with kids, hopefully you bring, you, a big part of you are those things that you're passionate about. And it's really important that you bring those things to the table because if you're passionate about it, it's going to instill people being interested in it, whether they have autism or not. Uh, and I think that's really, really important. So for me, coaching and running are two things that are really, I'm really, really passionate about. We share that passion. A few, many years ago, it was a, for me, I always exercise, workout, play sports, watch sports, all of that. Kind of got into running um, and decided, hey, I'm going to do one of those bucket list things and run one marathon. And didn't really know what I was doing and trained and did one and then did a couple more and eventually decided to be one of those people that says, hey, I'm going to try to do one in all 50 states. And so now I'm up to 53 marathons in 48 states. And by the end of this year, I'll have done a marathon in all 50 states. And for me, it's been a big part of who I am. And I've had the chance to travel and meet people, friends, even significant others I've met through running or uh, you know, at, at different people and have traveled to places I never would have traveled. And it's given me life experiences that I would not have otherwise had. So that running being so, I'm so passionate about, combine that with the fact that people with autism are, have, these, have a, lot of, uh, a lot of times have these challenges and limits on, and they don't, they don't either know what they're passionate about or they haven't had the opportunity to discover what they're passionate about or if they have passions, it's, it's, a, it's a, a limited scope. And so my hope in bringing that to the table with the students that I work with was to create more stuff, more, a teacher and I, we call it epic experiences. We want to help our kids do epic things. And so we can help them to run a race or not even run a race, but create maybe a love of, not being sedentary and having movement or walking or running, that would be a great thing. And so it was a passion of mine. I was very fortunate because I've had an incredible professional mentor named Sue Basic. She's an occupational therapy professor at Cleveland State University. She's now retired. But I've had the opportunity, I think you're going to ask me about some of our work together later, had worked with her a little bit in taking students from Cleveland State she approached me, It's gosh, it's maybe eight years ago now, and said, hey, I have my new book coming out, and it was about, it's about mental health promotion, prevention, and intervention. And really, if you know about occupational therapy, you know that the foundation of our profession over 100 years ago was mental health. And what was discovered was meaningful occupation, not jobs per se, but meaningful occupations and meaningful activities and meaningful roles in life has an immense positive impact on someone's mental health and their functioning um, and their ability to navigate the world. And so she approached me about 
hey, I want to have a, a, a community of practice and I want my textbook to not sit on a shelf. I want to have it go into the world and into practice. Be functional. Be functional. And for years, I had been at work saying, you know, I'd like to maybe do Special Olympics with my students. Boy, I'd love to have a running club with my students. Boy, I'd love to be more incorporated into all those things. And sometimes those worlds meet perfectly. And so we had our community of practice, ended up getting a very significant grant through the Ohio Department of Education, which allowed us to do a bunch of other things. Part of that, which has kind of become, I would say, my baby in that, is creating opportunities uh, for kids with autism or any really challenge or disability or trauma or anything, have more opportunities at rec and leisure and also demonstrating why that's important and what it does for those kids or those families and or even young adults or adults too. And so in doing that, all of those projects coming together, then I also happen to have fantastic leadership in the places where I work. So we had a CEO named Dr. Frank Fesser who is he just recently retired, ran our agency for many years, was with our agency for almost 40. Tremendous personal and professional mentor who met with me 10 years ago and helped me create basically a professional development plan. And part of that professional development plan was take a leadership role in our agency and create more opportunities for our kids. So there was that. So then working with Sue. It's a long, I'm going a long road here, but it's coming <laughs> back to your answer, I swear. Then working with Sue and then with our grant that we got, we obtained, part of that work was we wanted to look at ways to create more out-of-school opportunities for rec and leisure for students. And so that finally led, that was the impetus for me to go to my school principal, and I've told this story a million times in presentations at conferences, is approached her and said, hey, Dar, her name's Darlene Kelly, hey, Dar, boss, hey, I'm working on this big project with a professor from Cleveland State. I'd really, really, really like to do Special Olympics at her school. Um, there's some work to become a, a certified site. What do you think about that? And I was, I'm very blessed because the answer was, she just looked at me and said, hey, is it going to help our kids? And I was like, yeah, I really think it's going to help our kids. She went, okay, go ahead. So then that led to creating us ourselves a Special Olympics site. We just recently had our seventh annual Special Olympics. 70 students participating, medal ceremonies, parents, the whole works. I could talk just about that, uh, mm. all of the benefits of that. Then I'm a football coach, another one of my passions. So I started incorporating, instead of the kind of the standard sensory integration stuff that therapists do, I started doing some of the football drills I do with kids to make it a functional type of activity. Kids really loved it. A student approached me and said, Mr. Weiss, hey, this is cool. When are we going to get to play a game? I said, well, you know, that's a really good idea. So then we created a whole unit of activities and a school flag football game, which we now just had our, I believe, fifth one of those. Had another kid then say, hey, Mr. Weiss, I like the football game, but I don't like football. I like basketball. <laughs> well, I guess we've got to create a basketball thing, don't we? So then we have a basketball skills competition, which we just had our fourth one. And then that leads me to running. So I've wanted to do this running thing forever. And one of our central office people just happened to come up to me one day in the throngs of all of this and say, hey, Mr. Weiss, you know, at one of our other PEP schools, we linked up and we did this program where we walk or run 25 miles over th three months. And then we partner with a community race. They run 1.2 miles. And then the students have run a marathon, per se. They earn a pair of running shoes. You know, they get a medal at a race, and it's a really cool thing. And I'm like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. So had all these other activities, and then went, well, this is going to be one more thing to kind of create this curriculum of throughout the year, we're going to always have these cool activities that we've had this great, great impact with, and that's where the running program was born. And so that started four years ago at our school. And the great thing is there is then I kind of led it. We started this walking club. That first year we had three students do the running program where they did the marathon quote unquote thing. But we had probably 25 or 30 students in various classrooms started to build in walking club as part of their daily schedule. 
and create more movement opportunities for kids. And we found that benefiting kids during the day, even the kids that didn't run the marathon per se. But then we did have three kids that did the marathon per se, and they had an incredible experience. And so then we've continued to build on it. The following year, seven students did the marathon program, and then it's become a part of the school culture. That walking club is just kind of something classrooms do. And they learn a lot of stuff with that. You'll see these neat little conversations of students with autism. There's this socialization piece. They learn about rules and etiquette of races. They learn a little bit about nutrition. They learn about how you are with a group of people where maybe it's loud or all these kind of things to run when you run a race. And so we had seven students the second year. Then actually our agency left the group that we had worked with before because we felt like we could do a better job ourselves. And we started partnering with a different race and did it within our own agency and partnered with a race, continued to do all the same things. Then I had nine students. This year I had 15 students, 14 of whom, no, 13 of whom finished the 26 mile process. And we've added so much to that. We, uh, we just today had our, we have a runner's recognition banquet. Parents are there, um, receiving awards, uh, something we say at our agency, we have these things called the RIA principles, where it's the foundation of working with kids with struggles and troubles. And one of those is ceremony and ritual give order. And we know structure and routine for people with autism is really helpful. Well, that sure jives with ceremony and ritual give order. So to do something like this recognition ceremony, that ceremony and ritual is a very ordering thing. And there's a whole mental health component going all the way back to when I was talking about Dr. Basic. That I've seen things, um, I was speaking to you before we began, about a student that shows very little emotion. The students earn a pair of running shoes. When she got her running shoes today, she had had a very flat, blunted affect appearance. And after, this is a high school age student. And afterwards, she put those shoes on right away and had a gigantic grin on her face and was walking around preening and modeling for all of us, basically. Uh, it was incredible. Or I've had another student that got his running shoes and his medal from running, completing the marathon, and for the next two weeks wore his medal to school every day, showed every staff and every kid that would walk by. And that same kid, I remember getting his pair of running shoes the first year, hugging it and cradling it like a baby and just screaming, I love myself. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? right. It does not get any better than that. So on top of that, I've read more and more literature and research. Um, I'm not going to cite them all for you right now because I frankly couldn't unless I go, look, yeah. go back and look at them. But articles about things like movement mitigating the symptoms of autism. Participating in teams or sports, helping to heal from trauma. Uh, all kinds of things. Things about, I mean, I've talked about this in, in, in therapists have talked about this lots, about, gosh, the one thing. Students with autism a lot of times have behavioral issues. The one thing you should never do for a student that is having behavioral issues, whether they have autism or not, is take away their recess or take away their movement. Say, oh, you did this? Well, you're not going to get to go outside and play now. Those are the kids that need that the most. That movement and that, that actually is going to help their behavior. So if you take it away, you're actually, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face, as the old saying goes. Mm -hmm. Figure out ways where that is not the consequence that you use. Um, and for us, the running and walking is now, it's a part of the culture. So it's not this uh, contingent thing, oh, we're only going to let you if you do this. It's part of the culture. It's part of what we do. And there's all these benefits, and, and there's, there's more and more out there. Different articles, hey, this school in Texas doubled their recess time and their academic achievement scores went up. There's all, all kinds of articles and things like that that continue to come out to, that just point to Movement, sports, these recognition things, they have physical, mental health, psychological benefits for kids. And the beautiful thing is, too, is like, I, this is a, a podcast called Autism Stories, but this stuff is great for kids with autism. But if your child with autism has some siblings, this stuff's going to be real good for them, too, mm -hmm. if you consider the same, the same principles. Yeah, it's, it, 
So, the, so I think the, the, the running program as a part of our whole uh, curriculum of, of, and I've had, it's been, because the coaching and things are passions for me, getting to do that at my job is just a, uh, it makes me excited to go to work mm -hmm. every day. On top of the benefits for the kids, those activities create an engagement and an excitement in staff because therapists, it's very egotistical for a therapist to say, hey, I'm working with a student for this amount of time or I do this running club thing and hey, I'm the end all be all so now this kid's gonna do great. It doesn't work unless the therapist and parents and the student and staff are all in it together, uh, working together. And I think those kind of activities like running, it creates an excitement for the student and for many families too, on top of being engaged for staff and families, they see their, they see their child or their student in a different way that they can accomplish something that maybe they didn't think they could. And I think there is a huge problem in the community of autism and frankly, all students with disabilities. There is a big time stigma of low expectations. Huge stigma of low expectations that we have to really work on. Uh, it's something that, and things like this, I think, chip away at that. Well, because there's one student in particular at our school he had a lot of challenges even with mobility as a younger student. And this is his third year doing our running program thing. And this is not what you'd call a student that, oh, he's at the top of the ladder as far as his independent functioning goes. He needs a lot of support with a lot of things. But this running program has been a catalyst for improvements in him in a lot of ways. And that kid, again, that you know, he went from doing our marathon program to he's run three or four 5K races, he's run a 10K race, and three or four weeks ago he ran a half marathon. That is a, that's a kid that I think for the rest of his life, if his parents are going for a, to help him with an employment thing, and they might look at him and say, eh, I don't know. You go, hey, you know that my son did a half marathon and three 10Ks and five 5Ks? They might say, wow, he did that? Maybe I'm underestimating him a little bit. So I, that's kind of my hope, too, is what running can do. So it's continued to evolve and, I think, grow, because as we started, there's been so many benefits shown that it's continued to blossom and grow. And, and, and mm. I think it will continue to do that as we see more. The success builds upon itself, I think. Mm. So that, that was how it got started, and now it's kind of progressed and evolved. Now, we know that autistic people can often be very overwhelmed by sensory input in this world. And I think a great way to deal with that is regarding sensory sensitivities is through sport. So how helpful have you seen not just running or other sports to be helpful as a way to give autistic people the sensory input they need? In a lot of ways, I think. The student I was just mentioning, for example, that is a, that is a, a child that when he first came to our school about four years ago, that was a kid, if he stood 10 feet away from you and you took a basketball and threw it to him, he would jump out of the way, move about 10 feet away, and that would be that. Now you fast forward and there's mom and dad take him to adapted soccer, mom and dad take him to adapted football in the spring, adapted soccer in the winter, He's done this running program that he pretty much kind of does year-round. Throw in all of the work in school and that parents do at home with other things. Again, it's not an island. Everybody's working together on the same page. And this student, you know, race number one, I remember taking him to a one-mile fun run thing before he ever did our marathon program. It was his first foray. And we went to the race registration where there's about 300 people in a gym. <laughs> And there's echoes and there's... Very overwhelming. It's an overwhelming environment for anyone, really. Yeah. I remember my first marathon, it's 5,000 people. And I'm going, what do I do? What do I do? But we got him to that gym. And so we were giving him some really close support for that first race. So I was with him. And, and that we tried to prepare him by things like social stories before. Hey, there might be a lot of people. It might be loud. 
here's what we can do if it gets too loud. And so we did that, kind of went out of the gym, took a walk, practiced some deep breathing, did some things to help calm down, and he was able to then do the race. Now you fast forward, I think repetition and experience is a great way to deal with some of those sensory sensitivities. You know, sometimes there's the environmental manipulation things, like if it's too loud, hey, I wear noise-reducing headphones. And that's cool. That has its place. But ideally, we, could, we want to work on the underlying physiological, psychological issue so that we don't have to wear the noise-reducing headphones. So it's kind of slowly trying to um, expose the child or the young adult to, more, some, to novel experiences, but do it with emotional support, the support that they need, and slowly, gradually increase the depth of those new experiences. So that first race was a, you know, a little church run that had a couple hundred people at it, and we went out of the gym when it seemed like it was getting overwhelming, and we were able to do the race and felt good about that. And as we moved on, then it's, it's, he's gone from that to, over time, now kind of going to a race is just something he does. It, it, it tickles me every time because if we have a race coming up or he has a race coming up the Friday before the weekend race at school, I'll say, hey, man, what are you doing on Sunday? And it, it, it tickles me how he says it because he'll say, running a race. And he'll like really accentuate that running a race. And he'll get a big grin on his face. And so, again, going back to what we talked about before, I think the successful experience of it, the exposure multiple times, having the emotional support and maybe extra support at first and fading that, doing all of those things and the successful experience over and over and over again starts to chip away at those sensitivities. And I don't know how familiar, I don't know how familiar the audience is with Bruce Perry, Dr. Perry, but also there's a, there's a trauma element to sensory t sensitivity too. And so what he would say is the brain kind of stocks up experiences, positive, negative, or neutral. And so a student with autism, if they have some of these sensory sensitivities and they're thrown into an overwhelming experience and they have a negative experience in the brain, it's traumatic. And if you do that a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of times, it makes those sensory sensitivities worse. But on the flip side, if we can do it with the right level of support, fade that support, create successes, you start to stockpile almost like a bank account. I had this successful experience. I had this successful experience. I got through this tough experience and I did it. Over and over again, you start to stockpile those positive experiences in the brain. And Dr. Perry would say that changes the structure of the brain over time and improves it and improves the ability to... to Take in sensory information and also to manage your and managing your emotions is strongly related to that. So I think that's really a big important part of you know dealing with the, the sensory sensitivity. I think also as a parent or as a professional, doing your homework so that you don't inadvertently create a horrible experience the first time. It's really important that first time be successful. So don't aim too big the first time. Aim for a smaller success, scope it out beforehand, Plan. figure out what supports you need, do all, the, all that legwork beforehand, create those successes. And over time, what I have found is then those students need a little less support. Now I feel like when I've accompanied this student that I'm talking about to races, now I kind of feel like going to races is just what he does and he likes it. He's into it. And like at first we were going, oh, this 1.2 mile run, man, I wonder how this is going to go. Then it was like, we're going to try a 5K run. How is this going to go? Then it was like, ooh, a 10K run. How is this going to go? Oh, a half marathon. This is going to be a really big challenge. Did that. And then we just went back and did a running program last weekend, and he did 1.5 miles. And we were like, oh, 1.5 miles. This is, this is like child's play for this guy. And one of the goals – and. I was just commenting on this because the other thing is over time trying to fade it. So a lot of times he's worked with me to run in these races. Last weekend for the race was like, we're intentionally, I'm not working with him. It's going to be, so again, we faded that support. So now we're generalizing it. To, I can work with other people to be successful. And the, the ultimate goal for me 
when I was walking home last Sunday after the race, that I was something I was feeling great about for that particular student is I was going, you know what? I was running behind him and the staff that was running from our school that was helping out. And I didn't recognize him as a student with disabilities. He just looked like another runner in the race. And to me, that's the ultimate. The ultimate goal is hopefully we're like, hey, that person has a job. They're not saying, oh, not saying that person with autism has a job. Or that person with autism is competing in a race. It's like, it's another guy competing in a race. Cool. That's the ultimate goal and to take the stigma or those kind of things out of it. And for that particular student, I, I think doing it the right way has helped him with some of those sensory sensitivities and stockpiled those successes like Dr. Perry's talking about. And I think you start to do that, you start to see really big successes. I would also say, too, if, if you're a person that doesn't have as much experience, the, the, this day and age on the Internet and with resources, there's lots of stuff that you can, you can look up YouTube clips of parents that have had experiences or find, you know, occupational therapists have a really nice educational background in some of these kind of areas about manipulating environments and analyzing activities and breaking activities down into small steps so you can have success. So find, try to maybe find professionals and find people to help you. Or, you know, autism personal coach yeah, yeah. that can do the same, yeah. that have experience with this thing to help build those successes. So I think all those things are how you tackle mm -hmm. that. Now, sensory sensitivities can be supported not just through sports, but all types of leisure activities. So in doing research for this interview, I came across a pilot study that discussed occupational therapy leisure coaching as part of a three-year grant led by 22 occupational therapists through the Ohio Department of Education Office of Exceptional Children, and it reminded me a lot of what we do with Autism Personal Coach. Yeah. So could you tell our listeners about this pilot program and how you were involved? Well, I've already kind of spoken about it because that pilot program is work through the work I've done with Dr. Basie. So I can tell you that we did that community of practice about positive mental health uh, with Sue, um, and we had an original team of about 13 therapists, she picked us out. Again, that's, uh, if you're a professional listening about reaching out to other professionals if you're interested in doing things, or parents reaching out, because I had just happened to have, going back to the beginning of this interview, talking to, to, um, to Dr. Fesser about a professional development plan and just had talked about being interested in research and interested in stuff. And so I happened to mention that to Sue Basic when she came for a site visit because I take their student interns. And then that made her think a month later when her book was coming out saying, oh, David mentioned he was interested in working with some of this kind of stuff. I'm putting together a community practice. I'm going to reach out to him. So she reached out to me and said, hey, I can't give you any money. I can give you a free book. And we're going to do this community practice. So I would implore people, don't turn down an opportunity. So I said, what, once a month we're going to be meeting for four hours, reading a big textbook doing these online questions and answers and working together. So we did that, and we, what we realized is, boy, this is really good stuff from this book. How can we expand this? And so we did other communities of practice around the state of Ohio, and then we applied for this grant through, through, the, through the Ohio Department of Education. And so got a pretty substantial grant. I want to say it was in the neighborhood of $750,000 over three years to do a bunch of work. Um, there was different areas of that about therapists having an integrated delivery of practice, being an effective tool instead of pulling kids out in schools and how working together, as I mentioned, as a team is much more effective to help kids with autism and others. Uh, there was other model programs about recess. We talked about recess and, uh, and lunch periods as underutilized part of the educational process. And another part of that was out of school rec and leisure and kids with disabilities don't get opportunities or if they try to have opportunities, they're very unsuccessful. We need to look at that. And that was the ding ding for me. So we said, we're going to do this pilot project once we got this grant. So we had about you know, 22 of us. We picked one child and went through the process of, of finding something that matched for them a leisure activity. So sports is my thing. And it so happened, I sat in an IEP meeting the week before this pilot project was off the ground and sat in an IEP meeting with a mom, as a single mom with a son, 
uh, in a neighborhood that's pretty tough. So not a lot of opportunities outside, you know, in the neighborhood. And we sat in an IEP meeting and she said, boy, you know, my son, he loves football and basketball. And God, do I wish he could be part of a team just like other boys and have adult positive male role models. I just wish there was some opportunities for him. What she didn't know is in my mind, I'm going, he, 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 this is my guy for my pilot project right here. We can do this. And so I approached her and this mom was great. And so he became the project. So what we did is we spent a lot of time talking to him about what he's interested in. We talked to mom about what would she like to see for him. And then we helped her through the process of, we found adapted soccer and adapted football that I was already part of a little bit. And so he did the adaptive football program and we looked at what were the barriers? What, what help did she need to be able to be successful in getting her son to participate? How could we help him to successfully participate in that activity? And then afterwards, how did it go? Did he like it? What can we do to create more opportunities for him? And so for that pilot project, that's what it was for me. And then all 22 of us did that. Um, and then looked at synthesizing all the information and kind of creating a plan for other professionals or parents to do that, which we then did. And so actually, if you want to see that stuff, plug Ola here, that, that, that project that once we got the grant, we called it Every Moment Counts. We love that name. That stuck with us because things like out-of-school rec and leisure, recess, gym, all those kind of things are so underutilized and we need, we need to realize that those moments are essential for the positive mental health aspect and for child's, the childhood development and learning. For students with autism or otherwise. Um, and so we have a website, Every Moment Counts. Um, if you look up Every Moment Counts on Google, you'll find it. It's the number one Google thing. Uh, my Facebook group, Every Moment Counts, uh, promoting positive mental health. And on those, the website is some of the things that, through that private project that we came up with, the, the foundational things to do to try to create rec and leisure um, opportunities. And what I told Sue after that, was a, is for me as a professional, doing that pilot project is what led me to, that's after working with that one student, that's when I said, I need to incorporate more of this stuff in my practice at school. And then that led to all of the all school activity kind of stuff that I already mentioned earlier when we were speaking. So that all started with one kid. And it, what's so cool about that is the kid that I'm working with, we're talking about a very challenged student, extremely challenged, behaviorally and otherwise. And what was great was hearing mom say how beneficial this has been. And one of the things for her, the whole behavioral side of it, for that student, we, we would always say things like, hey, for us to do these fun things like play football or basketball, we've got to do these other things at school. So, hey, we need to have safe hands and safe feet and safe mouth and listening ears at school and with mom at home, and then you're going to get to do this really cool stuff. And that became something for her, not every time, but this kid was, had violent behaviors at times. There would be times he would exhibit behavior where mom would say, hey, Football's coming up on Saturday. we got to be safe. And it would snap him out of a really potentially negative behavior. So this rec and leisure stuff was beneficial in that area too. That was something we discovered in this pilot project. And then the beautiful thing is kind of expanding over time. So we created this kind of information you can find on that website. And then also a lot of us in practice, we started really making that a part of our practice. And gosh, for parents out there, the IEP in the state of Ohio, something we talk about a lot, it's so underutilized. If you go into the Ohio IEP in Section 9, Section 9 is, it is a law. It is a law. Most people do not know. Kids with disabilities have a right to access to rec and leisure activities as their typically developing peers do. And they have a right to the supports to make that possible. I didn't really know the extent of that law, even as a therapist who worked for a long time, and sat in hundreds of IEPs where we got to section on they said, oh yeah, just so you know, we, you have access to those activities. Okay, just let us know if you want something. Okay, let's move on. And that has helped me to be such a better advocate for kids. And there's been examples now where I have kids that, hey, we want them to be a cheerleader. They're at a separate facility school. We want them to be a cheerleader 
the student with autism in the district. And I had a meeting with the school district person and we talked through section nine and wrote it into section nine. Hey, she needs an aid at this time and this time. Here's the times we're gonna make the practices shorter so she can do it and the accommodations that she needed. And knowing that that law uh, was really beneficial for that student and it's now done that for multiple students where I've been able to, because I knew that, be a much better advocate for my students, and I think parents could do the same if they if they knew that. And actually, so doing that pilot project was was, was helpful for me too in learning to be a better advocate. I think I'm a much better advocate in the realm of rec and leisure for kids with autism than I was five years ago because of this project. So that that pilot project was uh, is is a I look at it as a really big part of my career now. Uh, going back to whatever that was six years ago, I think now. Um, and we even have, actually, if you go on that website too, you can see a video of my guy from the pilot project that's on there of him doing an adapted sport, interviews with his mom, with him, with me, him making fun of me during the interview. It's pretty great. And like I said, what's so great about that for me is you might look at it and go, oh, yeah, he's playing some soccer. That's cool. But this is a student that is really challenged and there's real... Uh, severe and challenging behavior that we were able to overcome for him to be able to do these activities that's pretty rewarding and also mom talking about a carryover to home in areas of behavior too so th there's a there's a whole bunch of benefit that we found and that all started with that pilot that pilot mm -hmm. project now some might say I'm a broken record but I'll say I'm a, a beautiful record sure. in terms of uh, this podcast so many times I've said we all need community and it sounds like this pilot study was a great way about uh, going about this however there are often many times to barriers to participation in community so through the pilot study what was determined in regards to barriers of participation well there's a few. Uh, in a, we mentioned community. First in a school setting, I'll, I'll start there. In a school setting, for professionals in a school setting or therapists in a school setting, there's a, there's a big worry about things like, well, wait, I have to work in this IEP goal. How can I incorporate this in? All of that. What I say, I've said in many presentations that local, state, national, and international conferences, is that is a bunch of poppycock. That I would submit to you that you could take any rec leisure activity that has meaning uh, for a student, that I could find ways to incorporate any IEP goal, whether it's something with fine motor skills, gross motor skills, socialization skills, emotional regulation skills, academics, math, reading. And I'll, I'll take it back to, that, to the running program. So... We have our running program. So our students help create the rules. We use positive behavior supports, PBIS, PBS. Educators probably would be familiar with that. They help us create the rules, so they're invested in that. Kids in my fine motor groups for weeks, they help me make a giant poster board. They cut out hundreds of little pictures because the kids make a giant bulletin board and all the kids doing the marathon, they walk their mile for a day for their training session and they go tape their or, or, or staple their picture on a, on, a, on a poster board. And so they've had to do all the fine motor work. They've had to work together as a group to create the rules. They have to go up and read that chart and read a graph to know where to put their picture every time they run a mile. Oh. Here's my picture. How many miles have you run? Oh, I got to look up. Oh, five miles now. There's a math element. Like I said, we go in our gross motor area. And now instead of it being kind of a clinical-y kind of, oh, it's a sensory integration clinic and we're doing this, we're doing stuff that directly relates to meaningful occupation. To me, that's real OT, real occupational therapy. We're helping them to have meaningful occupation. That is going to be better therapeutically than something that doesn't have, it's just a kind of a, an activity to do an activity. So to me, as a, in school and as a therapist, 
one of those barriers is some of that, hey, how, if I'm an outpatient therapist, how could I bill for this? If I'm a therapist in school, well, I have to work on my AP goals. I have to do this. To me, those, are, those, are, those can be barriers, but I think if you want to find a way to say yes, what we found in our pilot study and with our work is there's ways around those barriers for the professionals maybe working in a school. Then you get into the community, like you said. There are some real challenges. Things like for parents, so like I mentioned that one student, hey, this is a single mom. She doesn't have a million dollars to throw around. So we have to do the, we, we, we maybe have to give her the support at first. And for that particular mom, hey, that first go-round, I sat with her and filled out all the registration paperwork to, to do that first activity. I made maps for her so she knew how to get to the activity and back. I made sure I called her the morning of and said, hey, everything okay to get there. When he first started, I was the volunteer that worked with him, which that's another barrier. There are more and more programs in place in the community for people with autism, but a lot of times it's well-meaning, beautiful people. Well-meaning, beautiful people that have great hearts that want to do the right things but they don't have a lot of experience or necessarily all the tools to, to do their best work with a person with autism. So for me in that instance, to break some of that barrier, what I did is I brought a couple of visual supports. And so I almost kind of acted as a teacher of volunteers uh, to say, hey, this particular student, hey, you might want to use this visual support to help him make a choice of what he wants to do next in the football game. Or if you see him start to get upset, hey, model for him what safe hands look like. Show him taking deep breaths. Maybe squeeze his hands and give him some deep pressure input. So sometimes it was helping to almost train volunteers in certain experiences. And then again, like I talked about earlier, then towards the end of that year, kind of fade myself out of it. And then so it creates that community. Like he's working with somebody else, not just the staff that he worked with at school. Uh, so, so there, that's a, that's a real barrier. The positive is there's so much more stuff than there was 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, you know, churches have sensory friendly, you know, church days or services. Movies are doing sensory friendly movies, sensory friendly plays. Now, sometimes that, that term gets bastardized, I think, and they know that people are looking for that and how really sensory friendly is it? That's a whole other discussion, but at least there's an attempt. So there's more stuff, but the barrier is, is to make sure that the, the people working at those places or that run those kind of things understand. And so a parent or a professional could help to advocate. And, maybe, and again, do your homework and check out. Maybe you go yourself to the sensory-friendly church thing and make sure it really is sensory-friendly, and then I bring my child to it. Or maybe we go for half of the service the first time and then the second. So I think that's a way to help with some of those barriers. Hey, and, and let's be real, there's, there's monetary barriers. Uh, that's another positive thing is there is more stuff that's inexpensive or free than there was 10 years ago. Like I'm talking about this adaptive football and adaptive soccer. These things are very reasonably priced. I mean, we're talking, you know, for the adaptive football, I, I don't know, I think it's like under $100 for eight weeks. So we're talking about 15 bucks a week to go get an hour and a half of a great sport, be around a bunch of other kids, great volunteers. And then the, over the course of years, I've actually seen a bunch of these same kids, watch them develop just from some of these adapted sports, their skill development and, and things. So there's monetary barriers for sure. So for me, I know part of what I do is try to, if I'm gonna recommend something to a parent, try to do some homework and, and, and analyze and say like, hey, there's this cost associated with this. Is this something that can work for you? Um, and there are some, you know, in some instances, if, if, if kids with autism have access to things like, hey, they're linked in with a county board of developmental disabilities, for instance. Sometimes there are certain funds available because if a student is, or a child is doing some of these things, it could be seen as activities that are keeping them at home as opposed to maybe having to go to a group home, for example. So sometimes there are funds that can be linked to us. I've heard of things like a rec center pass being paid for through certain funds, but just saying, hey, 
If the student is successfully navigating that in the community, it's going to be something that helps them be successful in the home and hopefully can help keep them there safely and successfully. So that's that, that monetarily part, first finding activities that really are of interest and that work for the students, and then making sure that the people that lead those activities, I won't say they don't know what they're doing, but like sometimes it's great hearts, but maybe they need some more tools kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, as a parent or as a professional, like I said, maybe you make some adaptations. I'm going to go first. Let's check this out. Or I'm going to take my kid for a short period of time the first time and, and build up slowly. I think those can be really good things to put to parents. And then the in-school stuff, like, I've seen too many benefits of this. For That, to me, feels very excuse-making to say, oh, we can't do it. we got to work on the site. I think it's a very important part of practice. And it's real therapy as, as the, the, the founders of the profession 100 years ago saw it. What they did in the mental health hospitals 100 years ago is they did crafts. They did crafts with people with schizophrenia and found, wow, we do crafts or we do housework in the, on the unit and these people have less symptoms. Wow, this is really cool. And sometimes we get so science-driven and medical model-driven that we forget how beneficial it is to, hey, run a race and get a medal and how good that feels to, to have a meaningful activity and like what I'm doing, that we really, really undervalue that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a barrier actually too is we got to make sure that we value this really, really important stuff. I keep an article from the New York, or I think it was the Wall Street Journal that is on my wall in my office and it says, uh, feelings of awe uh, create positive emotions. And what it was, it was talked about a lady who was paralyzed and she went scuba diving or when they take maybe kids from the inner city to a college campus, when you take these things that are awe-inspiring. So, hey, for a kid with autism, running a half marathon or a 5K might be awe-inspiring. It has really big psychological and mental health benefits. And that's that whole, I won't say what we actually say, but we, we want to create epic stuff, I'll say, <laughs> for our students. And a teacher that, a friend that I've worked with for many years, he's a fabulous teacher, we are, I feel like we are great partners to help his students in his classroom achieve. And actually, his, his student is the kid that just ran the half marathon, too. I feel like, again, that collaborative, we have a great family component, teacher, uh, team component, and uh, that's when you see some real, real gains. So if you get that, that's going to that's gonna knock out a bunch of barriers if you have a strong team. Now, probably for at least a decade, I've wanted to start a community program to get autistic people more involved in running because I've seen so many positive benefits of running in my own life, and I know it could be helpful to people with autism. So that's why I was excited through Autism Personal Coach just this past spring to partner with you to do just that with the runner walk to a 5K program. So what did you learn from that experience? I loved it. I was so happy that you asked. I learned a lot. One, I learned that even though we were working with adults, there was a lot of similarities in the work that I was doing with kids uh, and adults. And something else that, that for me is so great about running, as I mentioned, like, you know, I like to brag. Sure, I like to brag about myself and say, like, yeah, hey, I've done 53 marathons. It's pretty, pretty cool, right? Yeah. You know? But the great thing about running is, I've run a bunch of marathons. I'm a super average marathoner, like really average. I mean, sometimes slightly below average if you, go, if you really look at really strong marathoners. But I just go out there and do it. And there's a lot of people that just go out there and do it. And it's a competition against yourself. Uh, it's something where you have to work to kind of meet a goal. And you got to push yourself uh, to go farther than maybe you think you can go. So like, hey, I was really, really stoked when I broke four hours in a marathon. That is really average. And if you, a competitive, to give you an idea, a guy ran the London Marathon in two hours and two minutes, in, you know, I think this year. Last year, I ran it in 201. Like, we're, pretty soon, somebody's going to break a two-hour marathon. I broke four hours once, and it was like I, I won the Olympic gold medal that day. It was in Minneapolis. I, I know exactly where it was. It was in Minneapolis. So this is a sport. You don't have to be an elite athlete to feel successful and have success. And that is part of what's exciting about working with you to do this, um, is to work with this group of adults. And it was exciting uh, through this. 
I saw the same joy uh, when they accomplished it that I see with, the, with kids or myself. So that is really, really cool. And I think, I think some of the same benefits. I think some of the folks that we work with maybe are a bit sedentary. Or, or this, maybe they were wondering if this was going to be their thing. And the thing is, walking or running is, like I said, I'm very average as a marathoner. It's really attainable. It's something that can be done pretty much lifelong. Again, for a population of people, a lot of times that are very sedentary, population of people with autism, for us to work with a group and see them be successful uh, to varying degrees of speed, some walked, some ran, some, I see some of the guys that we, uh, the people that we ran with, I see potential for them to get a lot faster if they keep with it, Absolutely. if they choose to. Um, I saw something that was very exciting to me, a couple of our group members that maybe weren't into it a lot at first, or they were very quick to say, no, I'm tired. I need to walk. I can't run. And kind of that coaching, it was fun for me, the coaching me going, come on, push a little harder, 10 more seconds. Come on, we're going to run to the end of this song playing that we're listening to is done. And having, having them respond to that and push farther and then see them feel really proud of themselves afterwards, I think there's real carryover to lots of other stuff. Like in their job, you know, the unemployment rate for people with us is incredibly high. Maybe if we create a little more resilience, maybe it helps them be successful in their job. Maybe it helps them just feel better so they get up to go to work. Maybe it feels better so they take better care of themselves personal hygiene-wise. Maybe it's, there's a whole bunch of, I think, benefits that I think we saw a little window into what that can be in doing this program. Plus, it was just really fun. They were, like, they were really cool individuals, and it was fun to get to know them and teach them things and watch them learn things like race etiquette and getting a good night's sleep before a race and how you announce when you're going to pass a race and watching them on race day do it. It was it, it, to me, it was just like coaching a team. Hey, you work on all these things in practice, and then they go out in the field and execute it. It is such a, for me, an adrenaline rush as a coach where you go, yes, like we worked so hard on that, and they've put it into practice. And so those guys doing that was really, really exciting. And it was fun to see on day one where they were, mm -hmm. and then nine weeks later... Yep. Where where they got and it's just it's just those small steps. Yep. We took those small steps in those nine weeks and and those that consistently uh, att attended, hundred percent accomplished their goal. Yep. And, and the other cool thing is I mentioned that socialization piece with my students is I heard a couple of them saying, "Hey, maybe I'm going to call you or maybe we're going to get together." So it, I don't know what's happened since that race day. But it sure seemed like maybe there could have been friendships that might have started as a result of that too. So another thing that I thought was really cool about, about it. Friends have things in common. Yeah. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it was great to have you today. Absolutely. Thanks, Doug. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And thank you for David for the great conversation. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach saves autistic people from feeling alone and being isolated? So often, autistic teens and adults struggle with anxiety and as a result, don't have success in their lives. Autism Personal Coach is a unique service in that we help autistic people by working on meaningful, individualized goals in the setting in which they will be used. So anxiety is greatly reduced and as a result, they can become much more independent and successful. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, it is very easy. All you have to do is email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. In next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Sal Spinelli, the vocal coach for Cody Lee, the golden buzzer winner of the first episode of this season's America's Got Talent. Talk to you then.
everyone around us has said that we've improved, taking longer to study, longer to learn. It also takes us longer. are different from you one human too who am I I'm a human too I'm just like you